Before you listen to the last 40 Minute Mental episode of 2020, I just wanted to say a huge thanks to everybody's support this year of the podcast and also myself and JBM. It's been a really tough year for everyone and the messages of support and appreciation we've had for the many episodes we've done in 2020 has been hugely, hugely appreciated. I know it's been tough for everyone listening to this, and I really hope that over the holiday season, you can get some much needed quality family time in. You can rest and relax and go into 2020 with a renewed sense of optimism. And I really hope that the 40 Minute Mentor can continue to inspire you in 2021 as we intend to make it bigger and better than ever with more diverse and interesting guests. So if you do have any ideas for future episodes or people that you really want to hear from, please don't hesitate to reach out. And please do keep spreading the word, sharing your favourite episodes. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes. It really does make a difference. Thank you all so much for your continued support. And I really hope we can meet in 2021, hopefully in person. Until then, I really hope you enjoy this episode. As we're heading into a very different holiday season this year, today's 40-minute mental episode on mental health couldn't be timelier. And I'm so pleased to have gathered such an inspiring panel to discuss a topic that touches so many lives. Although much progress has been made over the last few years, mental health is still a topic that comes with many stigmas, misconceptions, and a degree of discomfort when talked about openly. And that's why it's so important to actively encourage dialogue, which is something today's panellists are very passionate about. My guests in today's episodes are three people who have all experienced mental health challenges in different ways. They are wellness expert, psychotherapist and balanced media founder Sophie Scott, benevolent AI HR director and mind ambassador Rohan Kalicharan, and author, presenter mental health campaigner and my former drama teacher, Carrie Carlyle. In today's discussion, we touch on a lot of points I'm sure many of you will be able to relate to, including why silence is so dangerous and why the first step to finding a way forward is to talk to someone you trust. We also discuss practical advice on how to maintain your well-being and what to do if you feel you need professional support and how you can help a loved one who is suffering with their mental health while also protecting your own well-being. We may have been talking about a heavy subject, but I left our conversation feeling inspired and optimistic that no matter how low you may be currently feeling, it is possible to turn things around. Our three panellists really did open up and share some truly raw and honest opinions and experiences that I hope will really touch you. It left a lasting impression for me. So if you are struggling and listening to this, I really hope it will be helpful. And I know that all of our guests today will be more than happy for you to reach out to them if they can be of any assistance. So sit back, relax, and please enjoy this really important episode of The 40 Minute Mentor as we talk about mental health. 
Well, welcome everybody to this special edition of the 40 Minute Mentor focused on the very important topic of mental health, something that I think is more relevant than ever given the challenging year that we've all had as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. So without further ado, I'm going to let our three fantastic panellists introduce themselves. So if you don't mind, uh, guys, do you mind giving our listeners a little overview of your background and also share a little bit about your own mental health story with our audience? Sophie, do you mind going first? Yeah, of course. Thank you so much, James, for asking me to join today. So hello, everyone. I am Sophie Scott. I'm a psychotherapist, wellness expert and an entrepreneur. I founded a media company all about health and well-being, really about mental health, actually at its core called Balance, where I was also the former editor. You may have picked up our magazine on the underground or even attended one of our events. And I like to give that context because I know the very real struggle of kind of balancing or trying to balance, I should say, a very busy working life with, you know, looking after myself and also trying to have a little bit of fun at the same time. And I haven't always managed very well. I have experienced stress and anxiety myself, which sort of culminated in burnout where I was in a psychiatrist's office. Yeah, was a was a real low point, let's just say that. Uh, so yeah, mental health is my real great passion, both as an individual, as a human being, but also as a psychotherapist where I see clients every week and I sort of get to find out what works and what doesn't. Amazing. Thank you very much. Rohan, do you want to go next? Yeah, of course. So my name's uh, Rohan Kalichuran. I am... By day, I'm the HR director for um, a high growth tech company in London. Away from that, I'm uh, mental health. I always, uh, I, I, I never know what what word to use here. Some people say champion, some people call warrior. I'm, I don't really see myself as either. Um, but I am uh, an official uh, champion ambassador for uh, Mind the mental health charity. And that's something that I'm uh, extremely passionate about. My own lived experience of mental health is like so many uh, people around my uh, my age group. Uh, I'm now in my mid-40s. And I first exhibited um, uh, signs perhaps that all wasn't well in my late teens. The usual story, uh, asking for help from uh, people that uh, I trusted to uh, provide that help, mainly um, uh, you know teachers, professors, doctors, etc. But uh, being told constantly that everything was all right, and seeing uh, life unravel around me really over a long period of time, and it took three suicide attempts in fifteen years before um, I actually was uh, led by mind through a peer group to a diagnosis, eventually of uh, bipolar. And, you know, I've, I'm one of those very, very lucky ones. I uh, actually, I don't live with um, medication. I've been able through uh, some great therapy over the years, having a great network and support group to be in a position now where um, I've never wanted to give my life professionally to mental health because there's too much involvement that I have um, outside it. And I don't want to almost be one dimensional and live my life through that single lens. But it's so important to me that I can give back to other people now who may be um, traveling that same journey and give that kind of hope, hopefully be your role model and show actually it's not a barrier to being successful. It's not a barrier to being uh, happy and it's not a barrier to actually being able to change other lives. So, um, you know, that's uh, those, those are the things that drive me. And, uh, you know, as we've spoken about before, James, it's, uh, it's, it's a pleasure to join you and um, uh, Sophie and uh, Carrie today. 
Thank you very much. Cheers for sharing that, Rohan. And uh, Carrie, last but not least, do you mind uh, introducing yourself? It's so weird. I'm not used to doing this by myself. Uh, my name is Carrie and my husband and I are not mental health experts. We we are, I guess you'd call us corporate speakers. We we talk to everyone though about our lived experience. It's weird. It's like we're Bert and Ernie, but only Bert is here. Like Ernie, I don't know how to do it without him. He, um, my husband's tried to take his own life on five different occasions and He's a retired footballer, so it's been quite a public journey. So we made the decision in 2017. He talked about it before, but whilst he was still poorly, we decided to to use the platform that we'd been given to to see where it was going to go, to see how well he could get. And we founded, just behind me subtly, Clark and Carrie's Place, which is where people can get help. We've got, we have the only full database of every single NHS resource in England. And we have a traffic light system on there, which means that you can get help if you're in crisis or talking therapy if you're in the midst of we call amber and then resilience we have our Clark and Carrie's house where we help people build resilience so that's what we do I by myself I don't know what to say that's really bizarre can I tell them I used to be your teacher you can say that yeah <laughs> another life when James was not a, a big married man with baby and lovely wife uh, I was James's drama teacher a long long time ago so my favorite teacher I should say of course God, you, um, you don't look old enough Carrie I love you believe it we did we that was a long time ago so our lives have gone on very different journeys since then so not a mental health expert we won mine's 2018 speaking out award I think we've had over 100 million downloads of podcasts that we've done in the past three years but we're not tech heads so we don't know how to do stuff like that so we know that people want to hear from both angles both the lived experience of the sufferer and the person that can spot the sign, spot the symbol, give some tips. I'll stop talking now. That's incredible. Uh, can, I, can I just can I just jump in there as well and Please. say um, a, a huge thanks, Clark, by sharing his story as has opened up so much of the work that I've been involved in uh, with the FA and Heads Together and with Mind in the English Football League. I've worked on both of those campaigns as an advocate, and it's by people like Clark really, really driving that vulnerability that uh, we've been able to have so much success so uh, I'm very proud of him I'm his biggest fan but yeah (laughs) thank you I will tell him that's very kind thank you all Oh, well, thank you all so much for being so honest and, and giving your time to, to talk about this today. I really appreciate it. And I guess I wanted to kick this off by breaking down some of those barriers around mental health, which definitely still exist. I think a lot of progress has been made in the last few years, but there is still work to be done, particularly, I think, around sort of opening up a dialogue about mental health. And Carrie, I wanted to start with you because, yeah, of course, naturally, as my former teacher, um, what what do you think that we can all do to encourage more conversations about mental health? And how can we reassure those people that are suffering that they're not on their own? Do you know, I made loads of mistakes and that's how I learned how to do this in the way that we do it, which is seen sort of the biggest uptake in people being honest and being vulnerable. It's a really hard ask to say to people talk hi how was your mental health like that's a weird conversation Mm. to have isn't it but so when Clark came out of hospital I thought it was about him being ill and me being well and this well person was going to help this ill person 
And then we learned it's not, I don't have a mental illness. You know, I don't have recurrent depressive uh, episodes. I, I don't have head injuries, you know, but we are all on this mental health spectrum. And I didn't know that until I experienced it. And words can only teach so much, can't they? So by experiencing adverse mental health uh, because of the trauma that Clark's illness put us through, not him putting me through anything, which people do accuse me of in supermarkets quite a lot. How could your husband do that to you? Like if he had heart disease or diabetes, they'd do that. But anyway, I digress. We're all on this spectrum. So for people to open up is exactly the same in the micro. How I got Clark to open up is I wasn't very well either. And we talked about it. So it's not about fixing someone else. It's about saying, do you know what? I want to get help or... I'm not feeling so great and I know I can feel better. Whether it's at the top end of the scale and you just need a bit of resilience or personal development or the very bottom of the scale and, you know, you need psychiatric help and hospitalisation because you're a danger to yourself. It doesn't matter. We're all on there. We're all equal and we can all do it together. But it has to start with us. Otherwise, we're just lecturing to people and that's not appropriate. Absolutely. I think... um... I think it's it's one of those things, that, and I'm guilty of this myself. I, I think you know, for a long time, just kind of just just cracked on with life and didn't really think about mental health. Didn't, you know, I, I knew people that had suffered with depression in my family and friends, but the idea of talking about it, the idea of actually sort of self-analyzing myself and going, actually, well, there was some times you've been pretty down and like really unhappy and really stressed, and it's only really in the last few years where it seems to be a topic that people are more comfortable talking about, and people like yourselves that are actually in the public eye, you know, driving this agenda that seems to making a real difference sophie rohan did you have anything you wanted to add to that in terms i guess particularly around maybe those people listening to this that that may be suffering that may be thinking they're all alone in this this battle by themselves what what can they do maybe to kind of get out of that headspace i think from my perspective and you know well i'll come on to it i i think by creating relatable role models we can create an environment which gives people the freedom the voice to speak and you know that in many respects that applies to everything we do in life but i think so much around mental well-being how do we put this in such a way that people suddenly shout out you know it used to be something that if people were being politically correct they'd be up in arms about it but actually i want people to um kind of like turn around to me and say no way you're mental because actually i do want people to be able to relate and say oh, he looks totally normal. And I hate the word normal, but, you know, whatever normal means, yes, I am, because we are all on that spectrum and it doesn't change anything. We can all be vulnerable. And by telling those stories to which people can relate, it begins to make them challenge their own perceptions and actually begin to um, feel that they can be bravely more open about, um, uh, you know, whatever they might be feeling themselves. Thank you. I agree with that totally. And I suppose I just want to add that you don't have to be sort of confident to talk about these things. And you have to be courageous. And actually, we can all be courageous. And it's through doing something that you find courage. So I, I think that's really important. You know, people might look and say, well, it's your career. It's, you know, you've got a profile, whatever. It's absolute mm. rubbish. Like, Honestly, you know, we find confidence through taking steps and, and you, we all have courage within us. It's, you know, so just do it if you can, you know, confide in that one person in your life that you really trust 
speak to your GP, find a therapist. There are fantastic resources out there. You matter. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. I think it is baby steps for some people, isn't it? It's not going to be this huge revelatory thing that happens. You know, it has to be some big public display of going after and actually trying to fix things or whatever. It's not like that, is it? In, in many cases, that's really, really good point. Thank you, everyone. Obviously, we touched upon the topic of suicide, which has been reported as being the biggest killer of, of men under 45 years old. So clearly, historically, it has been maybe perceived that talking about mental health in men is a sign of weakness, very kind of macho culture and all, all, all that sort of stuff. What can we do to change that perception? Because whatever we say, there is it does still exist, particularly in certain communities. So Rohan, we talked about this when we last caught up, I think particularly given... Our, our sort of backgrounds, um, but I'd love your your opinion on that. Well, I, I, I don't feel qualified to answer this because I'm 46 now, so um, <laughs> the, the under 45 piece, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't matter to me anymore. Look, I think it continues to be the most alarming of statistics. Um, it continues to confound me that after all of these years, and despite all of the progress that we have very tangibly and, you know, definitively made in terms of addressing the stigma around mental well-being, we still have not actually challenged the stigma around suicide. We, you know, there's so much we need to do to really make lasting change. I already spoke about um, storytelling. That's hugely important. Okay, because we need to tell people stories that they can believe. And actually, you know, I'll be absolutely honest. I was always able to relate to someone like Clark's story because I'd grown up in a professional sporting background. But we went through a phase where it seemed almost trendy for every celebrity to suddenly come out with a mental health condition. And actually, I didn't. I was there sat at home thinking two things. Where have you been all my life, number one? And number two, where's this bandwagon that seems so trendy right now? But most importantly, to strip that back, how can Joe Bloggs relate to you? And that's why storytelling is so important, but it's relational storytelling that's going to make a difference. We need people who are prepared to, you know, as Sophie said, be absolutely courageous, absolutely brave, share their experiences, share the fact that it's not easy, share the fact that recovery doesn't mean a bed of roses every day, share the fact that there are challenges to you and those around you, but share the fact that it's a gift. It's a gift that's made me more compassionate. It's a gift that's made me more resilient. It's a gift that's made me more able to impact on lives that I'd have never been able to touch in the past. And we need people to share the fact that there is light at the end of that tunnel. We need people who are prepared to actually, you know, really reach out and be that example. We spoke about communities, you know, <laughs> am I going to get dragged into using that word BAME? I shouldn't, but, you know, we spoke about ethnic minority groups, you know, obviously myself, James, Clark, all in those categories. We know that the stigma within those communities are greater even than, uh, than others because, um, you know, there's so much. And I remember, look, growing up as a kid, I have no qualms about saying, you know, I was always told by the people in my community, you're going to have to be three times better 
than your white counterparts and peers if you're going to amount to anything in life. That's a huge amount of pressure to carry around with you. And we need people who are actually prepared to stand up and tell our youth especially that's just not true and actually provide real-life examples of how we can overcome those challenges, not just around our mental health. I realise I've probably spent, I've, I've waffled on, and I want to make sure no, no, no. Um, that everyone it's gets really, the voice. It's, no, it's really important. No, it's really important. The other main thing as well, apart from the storytelling, is just to ensure that we reframe the conversation. You know, in the workplace especially, when I'm looking at workplace well-being, it's exactly that. And, you know, one of the campaigns I was involved in with the FA this year um, was the Heads Together Take a Minute campaign in January before the third round of the FA Cup. Every time we talk about mental health, everyone immediately starts thinking about mental illness. And we need to reframe that conversation so we can talk about mental health and talk about well-being and mean it. We need to be able to say, okay. My five fruit and veg a day for my physical health will make me a much stronger and healthier person. It won't stop me from being ill. And we need to frame it the same way in terms of mental health. What are my fruit and veg for my mental well-being that are going to make me more resilient? They're going to make me stronger. They're going to make me happier. It doesn't mean I'm not going to get a mental illness at some mm. point, but it gives me so many better tools to deal with it. So again, my challenge to everyone listening Take a minute every day to think, what are the things you're going to do? What are your fruit and veg to manage your mental well-being? For me, it's going for a run. For my wife, it's me going for a run, so she gets for a bit. Um, so basically, my whole family well-being is about me going for a run, so that's all good. But, you know, really genuinely think about what are those things that are going to feed your mental wellness. Let's reframe the conversation so people are focusing on what's making me mentally well, and what's actually got the potential to have a negative impact instead of just thinking, oh, mental illness, mental illness. I love that idea about the fruit and veg for, to, to help us with our well-being. I think that's such a good good way of looking at it. I think it, we know it's, it's difficult enough to talk about mental health when you know what's making you feel that way, but it's probably even more difficult to notice the signs in the first place. So Sophie, how do you spot those signs and how can others become more aware of them in themselves or, or when keeping an eye out for their loved ones? Yeah, I mean, it, it's hard to sort of cluster mental health together yeah. because different diagnoses have different presentations but fundamentally if you notice that either in yourself or in somebody that you know that there is a change in behavior a change of mood a change of sort of emotions those are the things to look out for so like I said it will present differently for example someone with depression might really struggle to wake up in the morning uh, they might kind of withdraw from other people. They might have poor hygiene, so even showering feels like a real effort, kind of have a loss of confidence, low self-esteem. Whereas in anxiety, it would present differently. So it would be a sort of someone's quite irritable. They might be more short-tempered than usual. They might be unable to kind of focus on their work and feeling like they've got so much on their plate and yet they can't really get anything done. They might have sort of tight muscles and panic attacks. So, you know, mental health is is complex, just as the body is complex. It, you know, lots of things can occur. But I would say those are the three things. Check if there is a change in behavior, mood and emotion. And if there is, do seek out help from your GP. 
And I think the other thing that I just really wanted to add, if if I might, to the previous question, just I was listening, I was thinking that, you know, women also have such a role to play in this. And I'm sure Carrie's got tons to say on this as well. But, you know, for so long, you know, there's been this idea that men have to be strong for us, but that's outdated now, Mm. right? And so we also need to talk about the fact that, you know, we want partners, sons, fathers who dare to be vulnerable and who speak out. And I think that's that's really important to say that. I just wanted to add that in. Sorry. I think that's a brilliant point. And I think that's something that I've I've been guilty of, actually, and, you know, of, of bottling up and trying to be really strong and not not necessarily sharing my emotions and when I'm feeling stressed or, or or anxious about things and and that's something that my wife's helped me massively come out of my shell and I'm still certainly not I'm not the I'm not the best at it it's still a work in progress but it's certainly something that I think I think makes a big difference so I think it's a fantastic point I'll give you a real life example of that my first date with my wife was sat chatting with each other and she's kind of like I know you from somewhere I'm kind of like I'm sure we definitely don't know each other and she said did you give a talk about mental health at um, uh, so, uh, uh, it's a church where we both uh, frequented at different times. She said, did you give a talk about mental health and suicide there um, uh, a few years ago? I'm kind of like, oh, well, that's not going to be kept secret anymore, is it? Um, but it's better it, it yeah, works. Yeah, it works. Great, awesome. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So believe me, Sophie, that is what you that's preaching into practice yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and i think on the, on the it's a really nice segue into just coming to carry because you, you know you i had to support. I was doing this i was listening to everyone well i think it's it, it really does this i guess what Sophie just said is really important because you've obviously had to support clark through his battles and you've had to do it in the public eye which must in itself be really really challenging but also I think one of the things that gets overlooked in this whole debate is sometimes you know a partner whether it's a husband or a wife when you know their other half is suffering and sometimes that gets a little bit overlooked and that can have a knock-on on their own mental health so it would just be be great to hear your kind of perspective on that and and what advice would you have for anyone that's listening whose other half or some close member of the family might be suffering at the moment right get comfortable <laughs> it's gonna take a while you know there are so many obstacles that we put in the path of getting help and silence is the oxygen that suicide needs it thrives on it so the more insular that we become and the more the more we don't talk the more illogical and irrational and more warped our belief system gets until a person will get to the point where they think that the best thing for everyone is that they aren't here anymore. Absolute belief, complete what they think is logic because the mind doesn't know when it's ill. If you break your leg, your body will know because it will receive signals saying I'm in pain and I need to get help. But if the mind is regulating itself, we're in an awful lot of trouble. And I didn't know that. So Clark tried to kill himself when I was six months pregnant, six and a half months pregnant. And I woke up to an email because this is the 21st century. I woke up to a suicide note from him. I thought he was on his way home from commentating. That was my introduction to mental health and suicide awareness. Genuinely, that's how it how it starts. Oh it was an email at seven in the morning with the line, uh, the tagline, whatever, I'm sorry. And it still feels surreal and odd. Yeah. And painful to talk about that. It hurts because he tried to leave me 
forever. This is a guy that used to miss me when I went to the loo. This is a guy that I sat down for dinner with and five minutes into our first date said, we are getting married and having babies. He was so sure about me. He was so positive about me. And I never saw it coming. I was blindsided by it. It gets slightly complicated, of course. And the reason that Clark was saved was because people noticed that he was in a park by himself because he used to play football, because it was on the news, because, you know, thousands of people luckily looked for him. So you can't have it both ways. You can't say, I don't want journalists coming and knocking on my door. But also, thank you, social media, because you found him. You, You don't get that. And I can't tell you how saturated in regret you are when you receive a note from someone telling you that they they have to die now. It's like this visceral saturation in regret and you would do anything to turn back time. It was a fact to me that Clark was dead. He was dead. I didn't see it coming. I was going to give birth by myself and I was never going to see him again. It's really hard to say those sentences and there's nothing I could have done about it because if he'd told me at that stage, knowing what we know, a tiny bit of knowledge was a very dangerous thing. If he'd told me, I would have reacted really badly. So I think we need to give ourselves a break a bit there because if Clark had sat down and said, I love you and it's been six months since we got married and we have a baby on the way, but I don't want to be here anymore. I would not have taken that well. If he told me now, I would understand because experience, you know, like Sophie says, experience gives you confidence. So. He was found after 12 hours and I will never forget that phone call. But do you know, the only reason that he was found and he is safe is because the gentleman that stopped him in the park had lost their best friend to suicide five days before. And you what to do. It's like, here's the bridge and here's the chasm. And here's the other side of the bridge. And most people have to experience it, unfortunately, to know what to do in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Clark was taken to hospital and his biggest fear on his fifth attempt, his biggest fear was that he'd have to go through all of this all over again. Oh, it's my fifth attempt. Oh, I'm going to get hospitalised. Oh, I still don't know how to do this. No wonder we are a nation in trouble when a little bit of knowledge is a very dangerous thing. So the worst thing that happened was he was in psychiatric hospital for three and a half weeks. That morning, my life was normal. That night, I was being told, you can't leave your husband's shoelaces with him because he will use them to try and hang himself. That was my new normal. But here's the point. It was all right. I didn't Mm. care. It didn't make a difference to me that he is this man that, you know, a lot of people do admire because he does work hard and he is very smart and he is very kind. It didn't make a difference to me that he was in a place where he was allowed to only eat with a spoon in case he damaged himself with it. We hear these scary statistics all the time about how many men try and attempt their own lives. Always men. I don't know why. How many about how inevitable it is that we're going to get here. 23 days is all it took. 23 days of my husband being such a danger to himself that he wasn't allowed to even sleep without someone watching him. Mm. Having intense cognitive analytical therapy to getting his medication adjusted because actually he was taking too much of it to getting out and beginning outpatient programming. It is incredible that people don't know this. And if you're in despair and you don't hear statistics like that, that's why people like us get out there while we're still poorly. We got slammed for going on this morning when Clark was very obviously unwell and had been at a hospital a week. But we'd made that decision because um, our friend Adrian Childs does a show on BBC Five Live. I'll wrap this up in a sec. And we were at home and he said, can you just come and both talk to us about this? And we were like, well, who listens to the radio anyway? Adrian will be all right. So we went in, not realising there was a camera on there and that they do little 
you know, they, they film it and put it out there. And a million people within 36 hours, over a million people had watched us talking for four minutes about this. And then how powerful is that? I mean, and that's when we knew that it had to. That's when we knew we had to talk about this. But we fell into it. We were kind of the first Mm. people that did it, and we didn't realize everything was so dark and bad and twisted and awful. Anyway, we kind of didn't notice that all these people were there, so we got slammed Mm. for doing it. But I'm so pleased we did it when Clark was poorly, because like Ro said, you need to see examples of wellness. You need to see examples of people who have been to as extreme as it gets. And I was lucky because thousands upon thousands of people sent me wishes. Thousands upon thousands of people sent me emails telling their terribly tragic stories. People come up to me in Asda and tell me how their loved ones took their lives and and all of their trauma. You know, they give us that because we took that on. We decided we knew that you don't just give a bit of yourself away and that's it. But like Ro and Sophie both said, you need examples of it's going to be all right. Yeah. Clark is now the most well he has ever been. And my job in that was Amazing. to get well alongside with him. My job wasn't to support him, to make him be codependent on me. My job was to, to learn very, very fast. And like his psychiatric team said, stay off social media, stay away from these scary statistics, stay away from this path of inevitability and just get well with him. And unconditional love. If I've got time, we'll talk yeah. about that later. But unconditional love became the absolute foundation of his wellness. That and telling him that I wouldn't be angry if he did kill himself. Oh. I wouldn't be angry at him. That was the biggest gamble of my life. And I'm a worrier, so I shouldn't really have said that. But I did say to him, I won't be angry if you do it, which gave him permission to get well, I think. it really. I mean, I would have been devastated. Devastated, don't get me wrong. But give them permission to be who they are and not to be blamed for it. Carry that wow. Sorry. That no, it's incredibly powerful. And I think anyone listening to that will I mean, uh, first and foremost have a huge admiration for how you've both come through it stronger and it's wonderful to hear he's in such a good place now. And you know, a lot of that is is down to him, but also your amazing support. And I think people listening to this that may be whether it's themselves or their partners who are struggling at the moment hearing stories like that will really I think help so thank you for for being so honest I really appreciate it I think it's so important just to and Sophie will you know through her profession really understand that and again Carrie Clark just you you know thank you for sharing the journeys that you that you've been on and I think the key thing here is that Carrie's absolutely nailed you can help you can support you can love unconditionally but you cannot be the one to fix because the minute you set yourself up to be the one to fix you're sending both of you down a very dangerous path because they're believing in the wrong thing oh yeah they have to you have to and I speak from my own the only way I could get better was because I wanted to because I knew I had to not because I was doing it for someone else because I, I you know wanted to do it for someone else I had to do it for me and that for me was a game changer was after that I don't know why by the way I, I, I sincerely do not know why. But after that third suicide attempt, I did pick up the phone and just said, Mum, help. Mm. To which oh. she said, finally. Not quite in that tone. She was kind yeah, of like, yeah. oh, my God. Yeah. You're lucky. But, she, she, you know. but that is a really fortunate that you were able, because the generational thing is is such a huge stumbling block. You know, the, the older generation tend to, especially 
in the ethnic minority background, yeah. you know, and, and I'm not going to white explain anything. I'm, I'm totally uncomfortable even saying that since my husband is mixed race. So obviously we, mm. we have that dynamic going on. Absolutely. In a way now. It is amazing that you could do that with your mum because parents traditionally want to take care of their children and taking care of them is to coddle them and not let the world yeah. near. So that is an amazing thing that people know that. I've never heard that before, ever. Yeah, no, it was, uh, oh, it was, you know, for me, that was the key thing. And um, once I'd made that that decision, there was there was really I genuinely no turning back because, you know, to give context, as I as I said earlier, I'd been undiagnosed for, you know, 15 years. And all if I look if you look at bipolar in general, we had this conversation briefly, the symptoms just look like a totally irresponsible, antisocial, yeah. screwed up person. Because if we put it into just a real microcosm, I'm off getting, you know, drunk as a mute, high as a kite, having manics, wanting to fight, argue, party for hours, days on end. And then two days later, I'm down here, unable to get out of bed, you know, just living with this crippling depression. What it looks like to the world looking in and what it looked like to myself was, right, so you're acting like a total idiot too irresponsible you can't deal with the consequences and now you're hiding from the world and that's basically what I told myself so I hated myself so I could never ever recover I could never get better once that was the case the minute I got the diagnosis and the minute I said I want help it's a game changer I was told I was seriously ill and I looked at myself in the mirror and instead of seeing someone I hated, I saw someone for whom I had the utmost compassion. I had the utmost respect for getting through as far as I had. And I looked and said, this ain't beating me. Yeah, not absolutely. No, not, yeah. not a chance. You know, I couldn't live with being a mess and someone I hated. I could live with being someone, someone that was ill. Yeah. And I do wonder over the years how many people the world has lost, how many wonderful people the world has lost because they've gone on these these sort of conditions have gone undiagnosed and they just haven't had the whether it's the the, the necessary support or the you know, they haven't reached out and it's yeah, it's so sad. I you know, with Clark he belongs to the biggest players' union in the world. He was put in psychiatric units that were ten thousand pounds a week. He was given everything yet wasn't diagnosed properly until he was 37 by the NHS. So there are things that are seriously awry here that they're really yeah. are. And you're right, James, how many people just didn't get the right therapy, didn't get the right medication. Mm. And once you have that diagnosis, you can honestly, to all intents and purposes, bear in mind maintenance, you can forget about it. You don't have to, you don't have to live with it. You don't have to think yeah. about diagnosis all the time when you've got the right tools and medication, do you? You can just get on with it and engage in therapy like anyone that doesn't have a mental illness but just has trauma, you know? It's so true. It's so true. Um, well, well, thank you, everyone, for, for your thoughts on that. I, I wanted to just spend a bit of time talking about actually, because we talked a bit, quite a lot about individuals, but actually, given the climate we're in, I think companies and business leaders also need to take a lot of responsibility at this time, particularly when it comes to treating mental health just as serious as we do kind of physical health. So I just wanted to ask, uh, Rohan, what's your advice for anyone listening to this that may be a leader or running a company or even a startup? What can they do to provide? better support to employees that, that that around their mental health role model vulnerability the amount of times i hear uh, I, I do talks and remember i'm an hr director making these decisions myself yeah. as well we haven't got a budget for well-being 
you don't need a budget to be honest and compassionate, mate. Yeah, you don't need a penny to be honest and compassionate. You don't need a penny as a leader to role model that kind of behavior and be honest to your people about, you know, what, um, what, you know, what you stand for as an organization. Uh, you know, that's, that's the first piece, role model behaviors that you're, uh, that you're, that you're asking for. But yeah, look, there are so many practical steps right now, which again, you can do without huge budgets. We've got to be so mindful of meeting time, you know, video burnout. We have to be so mindful of, you know, putting in place the right environments for people to be able to collaborate the things that they normally would do in a room together so what does that look like in this current phase is it having small breakout rooms or is it providing now that we're currently in london tier two being able to get a small group of people into a room in in, in the office to mm. to do that you know what do our expectations of people look like but again you know more than anything storytelling those are the pillars you know we've been able to have people telling stories people that our colleagues can relate to because they're the people they work with every day telling them that it's not a bed of roses but it it is okay not to be okay and the last thing i'll say on this right now actually tell your people that it is okay to be okay because right now there's so much talk about a mental health pandemic as well as the covid pandemic people are actually scared to be okay it's 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 flipped the other way around people think automatically oh lockdown covid pandemic if I say I'm doing okay, people are going to look at me all funny. It's kind of like, yeah. actually, you know what? I'm a miserable introvert. I've loved it. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's okay to thrive in the most challenging circumstances, and we Absolutely. need to encourage our people to be able to do that. So, no, you know, from my perspective, point. those are the messages we can – it's all about the messages you give to your people. It doesn't have to be high-tech, high-spend. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think um, I think we've seen with our clients as well, some of the, the companies that have come through this past year on top have been the ones where the, the leaders have been open and transparent and, and, and kind of, you know, been able to show when they're, they're struggling or if they don't know the answers themselves. And I think I think just especially in this generation, the sorts of candidates that we work with, they really respect that honesty, that that's the sort of leader and company they want to work for, where they can bring their full selves to work, whatever they're feeling that day. And I think that that really comes from top down. So that's super important. Um, I think, you know, as a leader myself, as a startup founder myself, I think one thing I've suffered with has been burnout. I'll be honest, I've, you know, sort of burnt the candle at both ends. I've taken on too much. I've tried to be, you know, a bit of a hero at times uh, and it's never really done me any good. So I don't know why I've persisted over the years, but I'm, I'm, I'm starting to learn a bit more about when I'm sort of overdoing it. But burnout is, is talked about a lot in the media and, and I think there's probably some misconceptions about it. So Sophie, I, I wanted to ask you your own experiences of burnout and, and what are some of the signs that maybe people can look for and, and, and what can they do to prevent it? Because it seems to be, a you know, an ever-increasing sort of condition and, and something that in this when we can't really escape work and home which is very much uh, linked at the moment it's probably going to happen even more so we'd love your take on that absolutely i mean burnout is is a complex thing it's not yet been formally recognized by dsm which is the kind of official diagnostic book from the american psychiatrists association it is, though, it has been recognised by the World Health Organisation as as a like a phenomenon. God, that's a hard word to say. So, so we know that it's true, and I know that it's true. 
Uh, and it can happen literally to any of us. You know, I'm generally quite a mindful person. This is my, you know, area of interest. And yet I struggled with it and suffered really, really badly. So what does it feel like? I mean, in a moment, I'm really keen to know what your experience, James. But but for me, it's a, a sense that you're kind of all dried up, that you have nothing in you. You have nothing left to give. Almost like, you know, a car that's running on empty, but it has no reserves, no reserves whatsoever. So when I had it, my mind almost stopped working. I found it hard to even string a sentence together. <laughs> it got really bad at one point. I just felt so misunderstood. Like even the people closest to me didn't quite realize what I was experiencing. I, I literally tried to fling myself from a car just to, as a wake up call, I think. I, I, I I mean, that was that was kind of, for me, as, as, as bad as it got. It's pretty bad. But it is hard because those kind of symptoms or presentations can also be there with depression, where you feel like you're, you're hopeless, you've got no mo- motivation, you've got nothing else to give. Um, but I think it's that dried up feeling that is probably the thing that distinguishes it. And, you know, Listen, it, it's generally brought, brought on from um, work stress or lifestyle choices, but also certain personality types are going to be much more prone to it than others, right? So if you know that you are a kind of high achiever who pushes themselves, who's perfectionistic, who takes on the world's problems and doesn't ask for help when you need it, it is much more likely that you might suffer from burnout. So if you recognize yourself within that, and you know that literally you are burning the candle at both ends, please, I urge you to make an intervention today. Do something. Because, you know, if it gets really, really bad, people can take months or even years recovering from burnout because it can absolutely sort of destroy the adrenals and people can get adrenal fatigue and, and everything. So don't let it get to the point where it takes years of your life to recover. Yeah, I think it's 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 really important advice, and I do urge anyone listening to this to to take that on because I I see it a lot. I th- see it in clients, I see it in candidates, I see it in friends and family, where you just know people are pushing themselves too hard, and and it's starting to affect everything. It does affect everything. I think what what I've seen even in this pandemic is that you know I realised that you know, last week that I'd probably taken two days off since March. And that that's not that normal. It's not sensible, really. And although I've absolutely loved spending more quality time with my wife and my daughter, and, you know, I've probably done a little bit more exercise than, than usual. And there's been certain massive benefits of lockdown. There's also been this thing that's actually, you know, we've been trying to keep our business afloat. We've been trying to you know, higher in this difficult time. There's so many different aspects. And I've certainly found myself just really like flagging. And, um, you know, to the point where I was just like, all right, I need an intervention. I'm going to take, I took last Friday off. I'm taking this Friday off. I'm trying to just ease in and then take a a better break at Christmas. But I I realized it was affecting just my ability to get things done in the way that I like to, just because I was trying to do too much, not sleeping well, stopping the exercise, starting to eat more sugar to get me through the day, like all those little things that I know ultimately don't make me that happy. And it is such a false economy, right? Mm -hmm. Because actually you, you, you know, you think you're busy and you're doing great things in the world, but actually you're completely unproductive. You know, I mean, I think studies show that the best, the most productive people work really hard for 52 minutes and then they take a break of up to 17 minutes. Yeah. They achieve a lot more 
loads of us who just keep going yeah it's a real false economy so yeah thanks totally I think we've got to be mindful though that there's I mean obviously I'm not an expert but I I hear a lot of people that don't know the difference between complementary therapy and actual medical therapy so mm-hmm. People will say to us, I'm not going to take my antidepressants because I go running. And I'm like, that's nice. No, because if you're innovated, you're innovated. And all of us are. We all drink too much in this country. We all don't sleep enough. You know, we all stress ourselves with commutes or national pandemics or global pandemics. We're stuck in the house. So you can't cheat it. Well, my husband's a really great example. We are a really great example of how not to do things in a public forum. You can't get around it if you're enervated, if you're anxious like I get, highly strung, or you're down like Clark gets. Medication and therapy bring you to here, and then you can add the complementary stuff in as well. And then it can be about resilience and it can be about personal development. But for anyone that thinks that, you know, changing their diet alone will help or going for a jog alone will help, we absolutely know it won't. And we don't want you to ever get to where we are you know we don't we don't love telling our story it's always a little bit traumatic but we tell our story so that the more we repeat our story the less likely anyone is to repeat our actions and those are actions that we did and we know they don't work so please 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 don't be afraid to engage with those things and get passionate about them but you've got to get help first proper medical help proper therapy like from someone like Sophie as well proper help Mm. from either a psychiatric unit or a GP stuff like take the Goldberg test and get that objective number you can do that free online take a PTSD test you can take all those at our website by the way or anywhere the NHS has them take them get an objective score that way no one's lecturing to you you know I heard Mm. a great phrase as well um the CFO of Starbucks did a talk mental health talk he's so good Johnny Jacobs and he said you know If I gave you a pound and you gave me nine back, that's what it's like to get mental health help for your employees. That's what it's like. That is the actual financial equivalent of of the money that you save by getting help for the people within your organization. Preventative, yes, and also at the bottom end as well. So I'm no financial expert, didn't even get me master GCSE, but if you give me nine quid and I've given you one quid, I'm liking that. So <laughs> it's it's just daft that we're not doing it, you know. It's just yeah. daft because things can be turned around fast, easy, and permanently. Practice makes permanent. You know, Clark and I really believe that. So get well and then practice your ass off. Totally. So, Thank so, you, so, so agree with, with that. And almost bringing those two points together, um, James, is actually our health is holistic. You can't compartmentalise mm. aspects mm. of your well-being. Mm. They, they are intrinsically linked. There's not a magic formula which says 30% of physical health plus 70% of mental health equals perfectly well, but there's an intrinsic link that you cannot mm-hmm. escape. Now, last year I I did go down go down that burnout route, and it was my body that gave up first. Yeah. Because actually I am. I'm so I'm I'm a marathon runner. As, as you know, I'm a little bit of a mental marathon runner who's uh, decided to run 21 marathons next year to raise money for oh, me. But that's another thing. Wow. Incredible. Oh, good um, man. But um but the, rea- the reality was I was I was that I knew I was burning the candle work wise and I was basically my my physical exercise instead of being something which was beneficial life giving and energy giving was 
becoming just a chore, a sap. It was a run into work and a run home from work, but I was constantly rushing because I was rushing to get into work for a call early in the morning and rushing to get home to see my wife because it was so late. So it was there was no benefit to it because it was just something I was rushing in to get from A to B. And actually, I begun to uh, get injured. I thought, oh, okay, I'm getting injured. That's fine. But actually, it was when I knew mentally I was also beginning to struggle burnout-wise, I could see, actually, that's not an injury. That's just my body telling me something's got to give here. So, you know, you can't look after your mental well-being, as Carrie said, without having a plan. It's like anything else. You've got to build the foundation. You cannot build an empire from ground level without putting the foundations in place and your foundations are ever evolving when it comes to your mental well-being mm. your foundations don't stay still they're moving and you need to take the foundations with you if you continue trying to build on something which has no foundation you're going to collapse yeah yeah absolutely and your point is really interesting just thinking about it myself just that that point about rushing is, is really interesting because I think that's where I've been at times where I've just gone going at pace from one thing to the next and and making mistakes because I'm just because I'm, I'm just not taking the time to step back and actually breathe and actually for me as an asthmatic uh, breathing is really important and not something I actually do very well in the right way uh, because I'm all the time on the go so I think that thing about just taking a step back and, and breathing a little bit and taking some time and that's what and I'm not I, tr- I try calm and I've, I've tried meditating and I haven't quite found the thing for me yet but I know some of those for you know for it's worth trying different things whether it's yoga or meditation or just breathing exercises we are really sadly pretty much at the end here and we could go for hours so I'm, I'm going to say this now I'm sure there's going to be around two of this at some point next year but to, to wrap up we talked about some amazing and so important topics here thank you all for being so honest and and vulnerable about about these these things and i'm sure our listeners will really appreciate it but i just wanted to leave them with your final thoughts or any advice or any resources that that you'd like to leave our listeners with so sophie i'll go to you first anything that you wanted to just finish up on I suppose just a thought that, you know, we're speaking about being good role models and mindful leaders, but just to notice what kind of internal leader that you have, you know, it's it's a bit like what you just said, Rohan, you know, pushing yourself to such a degree. <laughs> and I think if we start to notice our sort of inner critic or our inner regime, it can be really useful because how can we really model it for others when we are so harsh on ourselves? And by the way, I'm saying this to myself as much as I am to anyone else, believe me. But it's such a reminder. It's such a reminder. So what is, what kind of leader do you want to be? Who, you know, how do you want to lead your life? Can you identify that? And actually start to really internalize those qualities. Forget about externalizing them for a moment, but just actually really internalize that and start speaking to yourself in such a way. Thank you. Thank you. Carrie, any final thoughts? Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. It will be fine. Love it. Thank you. And and Ray, to finish with you. I'm I'm actually saying listen to the ladies in your life because actually listening to Sophie and Carrie is uh, has been uh, absolutely uh, revelatory and uh, brilliant this afternoon. But I think yeah, you, I I think as well as actually, I genuinely mean listen to people 
because actually people will see things in you that you won't see in yourself. And remember, it is okay to have, have, have we got any junior listeners on this? I don't, it's all right to have a crap day, okay? Yeah. Having a crap day doesn't mean that you have to be anxious about a mental well-being problem. It doesn't mean that um, the world's going to cave in. We all have crap days. But actually what you need to be really honest with yourself is if there's a repeat pattern of feelings, of negativity spiralling in, that's when you need to be able to step back, assess, and actually say, actually, what's going on here? Amazing. Thank you so much, everyone. Very inspiring and thought-provoking. I really am very grateful, and, and I'm sure we'll do this again at some point because it's too big an important topic to just do once. But for now, thank you all so much for your inputs and, and honesty, and I'm sure anyone listening to this will be super inspired. So thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I really hope that you enjoyed that episode of The 40 Minute Mentor. And if you did, please leave us a review and tell your friends so we can continue to bring you awesome interviews from inspiring entrepreneurs and business leaders. Please also feel free to reach out at info at jbmc.co.uk. Thanks again for all your support.